Right now on Tech Radio, we discover who doesn't tweet at Twitter. Hi, I'm Artemis. I am a computer-generated AI voice, and you're listening to Tech Radio. Every week online and on air with RT Radio, we bring you the very latest in tech. You're very welcome to episode 975. This week, as the world continues to talk about AI, we're asking, do people understand it enough to get the most out of it? Get ready for a great chat on that with Mark James, Senior Lecturer in AI at UCD. We're also checking in on an attack on Microsoft services during the week. Why Meghan Markle and Spotify are getting divorced and Twitter trouble in Australia. This is Tech Radio with Dusty Rhodes and Niall Kitson. Joining us as always is our Tech Central Editor-in-Chief, Niall Kitson. Niall, you've been away. You've been away. You've been to Limerick and you made it back. What were you doing there? (laughs) I've been to sunny, exotic Limerick. Um, Yeah, I was out there uh, visiting analog devices, Catalyst, uh, facility. Mm. It's kind of their R&D facility. And what they have announced uh, over the last few weeks is they're investing, the company is investing $630 million in it, and they're looking to create 600 jobs. So this is an absolutely incredible investment. Mm. And when I was out there, what I thought was fascinating was the company's move away from just producing components mm. and going here are components, go make something, to a company that understands how what they have works and how they might work for other people once they're aware of those people's problems. So the previous model, there was a, you know, a systems integrator or somebody actually making a solution in the middle. There is a customer on one end and there's analog on the other. And what they're looking to do is basically cut out the middleman, employ those guys themselves and listen to the customers who say, I need something to do this. And they can go, well, yeah, we've got something that can do that. And we've got people over here that can do it. There you go. Have you been writing about this on the website? I have indeed, yeah. We have an interview with uh, Joe McHugh. Uh, who uh, is one of their VPs of automation. And that went up on Monday. So you can have a read of it on Tech Central right now. Also in semiconductor news this week, what have we got? Yeah, another massive jobs announcement, AMD. They're hiring 290 people in Cork and Galway. Uh, um, uh, Cork and Galway, I think it's Cork and Dublin, actually. Um, But they're investing $135 million in their Irish operation. And what I find very heartening about this is that, again, they're leaning into research and development, into engineering. These are the jobs we want to see happening in Ireland. I mean, mm-hmm. I've I've prattled on about this for years and years and years. Whenever we've heard about, you know, a small company or an American brand name or, or any kind of company coming into Ireland and they say we're creating five jobs, we're creating 10 jobs. I'm not worried about the number of jobs because these operations grow when they're successful. And that's, that's great. Um, it's the nature of the jobs that I'm always interested in. Are they sales and marketing jobs? Are they you know, admin jobs, uh, or are they research and development and engineering jobs? And it's the latter, which is what we really want to see happen in Ireland. Those are the jobs that we want to see pitch up, stay in Ireland, keep the innovation happening in Ireland, as opposed to maybe sales or uh, administrative tasks. So it's kind of more the brains of an operation is based in Ireland rather than just the administrative functions. 
exactly yet. That's what we want to see and it's what we're seeing. So I'm delighted. On the uh, side of AI, now we've got a great interview coming up a, a little later on, but there's a couple of bits and pieces about AI and like everybody's talking about it and usually it's good. This week, mm, 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 not so good. Um, and, and, and a couple of things to do with it. Tell me firstly about the uh, uh, the Grammys. They're, they're not impressed with AI. The Grammys are not, well, I mean, they're, they're unimpressed yeah, I suppose they were unimpressed with that. Basically, <laughs> the Grammys have come out. I was trying to put it in diplomatic terms. So I was like, no, they hate it. No, they're just uh, not impressed. Like, I mean, last week we talked about uh, a new Beatles song that is using AI basically to pluck out mm. uh, John Lennon's voice so they can you know, effectively re- remix it, remaster it, uh, what have you, and create a, a, a new piece of work. Mm. Um, that kind of, kind of thing is absolutely fine. It's solving a problem. Yeah. Um, what the Grammys are uninterested in is the extent to which an AI is generative, right? So you remember the, um, I mean, you you shared the track with us a couple of weeks ago. It was Drake and The Weeknd doing yeah. um, doing their duet. Uh, uh, Completely uh, AI fake, generated. They're, they're calling it fake Drake. Great name. <laughs> fake Drake. But that's the sort of thing that uh, wouldn't qualify for a Grammy, right? It's sort of, you have to prove that there was significant, uh, definitive human involvement in the creation of a work. I mean, you know, if you could argue that, you know, uh, the likes of auto-tune have changed music forever. And, you know, just because you're using auto-tune in a song, it doesn't disqualify you from uh, winning a Grammy. So, you know, why should, why should anything else? Um, of course, it, all, it always comes down to the human intent and the human execution uh, of it, which is what really makes things interesting. It's that line of... Uh, emotional communication between the artist and the receiver. If you're mm. creating something that is nice, you've basically achieved a feat of engineering. You've you've not created uh, a work of art necessarily, um, and that's kind of the the line they're taking on it. That's that's not word for word, but that's that's pr- pretty much what they're taking. Now, is some of it fueled by technophobia? Eh, possibly. I mean. One of my favorite bands, I was just listening to them earlier today, uh, 65 Days of Static. They have, uh, they did the soundtrack to One Man's Sky um, or No Man's Sky, which was a a procedurally generated um, computer game, right? Which effectively had an infinite universe. You could go anywhere, you could do anything. And this band were tasked with putting together the soundtrack. So what they had was they had little snippets of music, right? And depending on the experience of the player, these snippets could be assembled to recreate the emotional tone. So you could be, you know, flying from one place to another, traveling from one place to another, and the music might be quite, you know, contemplative or kind of ambient or something like that. And then, you know, your situation changes and the music matches it. It's procedurally generated, right? The artists put together the data set and it's assembled by computer to match whatever, right? It's it's not strictly generative, but uh, that said, the Grammys would look at it and go, mm, yeah, prob- probably not for us. Uh, that's not to say 65 would be nominated for a Grammy. That's not their audience. But um, I'm just saying there, there, are, there are subtleties out there. There are differences. Um, and I think when you get to the stage where there is a minimal or non, um, non-definitive uh, involvement by the human uh, in in a piece of art. I mean, that's that's where you cross the line. And bear in mind, sampling has been with us since what the eighties. 
I think what it comes down to is that AI is a tool. It's not a creative entity within itself. And we've seen that before uh, where people have created photos using AI or whatever, but they, they can't copyright it because the court said, well, it was a computer that generated that image and is not a human, so therefore it can't be copyrighted. It's that kind of stuff. Um, and it's always down to, you know, the tools is one thing. It's knowing what to do with them is the trick. And, you know, we had a, a problem in our bathroom during the week. We had to call a plumber. Okay, so it cost 120 quid. He had to change a, a, a little washer. All right, it cost mm. two euro for the washer, I would say, right? It was 120 yeah. quid. I says, what's the other 118 quid for? And he goes, for knowing what to do with the washer. Ta-da! That's it. Yep. That's it. Mm. So there yeah. we go. That's the Grammys. Uh, no nonsense there. What about Marvel? They're uh, also unimpressed with AI. Marvel now slightly different to the Grammys in that the Grammys is just an organisation overseeing things. Mm. Marvel actually employs artists uh, and as a result there's quite a bit of unrest over the opening credits to their latest Disney Plus series Secret Invasion. Mm. Um, now if you've watched the opening credits you might watch them going eh, this is not actually very good. I wouldn't watch this show. These, <laughs> This is not a good introduction to the show uh, which is true. It's It yeah. looks very cheap. It doesn't yeah. look good at all. Um, and it has emerged that uh, two AI-generated images were used in the opening credits. Um, and, you know, for a show that's predicated on the idea that people aren't who they seem to be or people aren't mm. who they they say they are, right, mm. to create the sort of sense of paranoia, um, to have, you know, something you ostensibly would, would think is human-generated is actually AI-generated, on one level, it's like, ooh, that's kind of kind of interesting, isn't it? And mm. on the other, it's no, a bunch of people were saved a buck by thought they'd thought they'd use AI, <laughs> and now proper artists are uh, are annoyed at this. Um, and I think they absolutely have a case for it. Marvel, is, for all it has done for comic books, has a terrible history of dealing with creators and artists, um, and this is. For me, unexpected to hear that Marvel, a comic book company, is doing something that effectively undercuts the work of comic book artists. Um, anyone with a, a knowledge of comics history will go, eh, yeah, probably. Um, what, yeah, what annoys me more than anything is that it does have that cheap AI-generated um, look to it. All mm. the colors are kind of flash. Um, there are a few pieces that are meant to be people, but they, they're just, they just have that shininess to them. It's not convincing. Um, mm. It's its not good. It's not good work, Dusty. Um, I wouldn't, if I was an artist, I wouldn't fear for my job off the back of it. I would be very annoyed that I wasn't contracted to do something much, much better when there is much, much better out there in terms of expertise. But there you have it. Some effects has tried to do something interesting uh, and failed abysmally. Um, have you have you seen any of the show? Have you seen the opening credits? No, I haven't. But I've seen the pictures that uh, that have been online, and you're right; they just do look a little bit flat. And there's something. There's always something with uh, AI. I heard somebody describing AI and various AI services as like having an unpaid intern, and I think that sums it up really well. Because I mean, would you really trust an unpaid intern with something important? Well, that's but they true. go. And- they go and do things that are like convenient and handy and a da, 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 but you wouldn't actually, you know, for something important. Yeah. Yeah. Things that things that require supervision. Um yeah. that's that's 
that's where why you need someone that needs that experience. Uh, yeah. Oddly enough, I went to experiment with Midjourney uh, the other week, uh, mm-hmm. which is the AI generated art, art platform. And I sat there and it was like, you know, enter, you know, what you want and we'll get started and yada, yada. And I just sat there, I think, I have no idea. I have no idea <laughs> what I want to word, make. You're a wordsmith. You're not, you don't think in pictures, you think in words. Yeah. So, so maybe well, that's like I, was, I was just looking at it going, you know, potentially one of the, you know, great exemplars of AI generated art and pushing all this control into your hands and all mm. this sort of thing built on the back of other people's work, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I just, I had nothing. I had nothing. None. Didn't do it for you. Uh, also on AI news this week, Dropbox have announced, and I find this worrying, Dropbox is going to allow its AI to analyze the content of your files so that if you are looking for something or you want to ask a question of the Dropbox AI about the files that you have kept on the service, it will be able to answer it. And in hmm. some ways you kind of go, ooh, how convenient is that? But then again, I don't like the thought of my files being on a cloud server somewhere and to have that cloud server's AI looking at everything that I have there and being able to answer questions to me or somebody else as to what's, uh, what's in the files. Okay, right. So what kind of questions could you ask? Would you say, would it be like, hey, Dropbox, how many, you know, which documents was I emailing to Niall yesterday? Yeah, or the, which Dropbox or which uh, files do I mention such and such? Or do you have a video with bloody blah person in it? Or uh, I don't, I'll have to dig into it a little bit more um, because they are just rolling this out at the moment. But hmm. just the fact that the AI is analyzing your files uh, is mm-hmm. a little bit worrying for me. Also, um, I, I'm, Microsoft are doing this as well. So it's not just Dropbox. In fact, Dropbox are probably copying Microsoft because Microsoft are trying to let Bing in to look at all of the Word documents and the spreadsheets and everything that you keep on their server. And it will analyze the contents of the file and be able to answer questions for you. I suppose thinking about it now is not a new thing because I've been doing it for ages in, in Internet Explorer, not Internet Explorer, Windows Explorer. When you're mm-hmm. doing a search, you can actually search not just for the file name, but contents within a file. And I would quite often do that if I'm looking for an interview that we did with somebody a couple of years ago. Mm. And I just kind of go into the, the folder that contains all of the old podcast episodes and the running orders and everything. I just put the person's name and it'll pop up which episode it was. Mm. So yeah. on one hand, I'm saying I don't like it. And on another, I'm saying, hey, I've been doing that for years. You've been so- doing it for years. <laughs> Total hypocrisy, Dusty. Total hypocrisy. Otter AI, uh, another thing that I use a lot, for, I use it for transcription. A lot of people use it for uh, meeting notes and stuff like that. And it's one of these things that can sit in on a, a Zoom meeting or whatever it happens to be. And it will transcribe everything so that you're able to look back over the notes of the actual meeting and what everybody said. Then Otter did a thing where they were summarizing what was said within the meeting. So you had a couple of bullet points and stuff like that. Now they're allowing their own Otter AI to analyze that transcript. So then you can ask questions about the meeting. What was it Niall said about fake Drake? That kind of a thing. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's uh, See, I would, I would wonder about that because that's quite, it's, I mean, of course it's going to be, but it's a mechanistic approach to conversation. Mm. It's transactional, it's informational, it's context free. And you don't get those, you know, human to human cues, you know, mm. is it, is it sarcasm or is it a legitimate point that's being made? Um, now, you know, again, AI is a tool. 
It's not a substitute. Um, so I guess, you know, I'm catastrophizing a little bit, but uh, yeah, I'm I'm always concerned about summarization tools. I, I, mm. uh, intimidating as the long form of a text might be um, and tempting as it might be to uh, to summarize, you really do have to, you know, occasionally dig into the nuts and bolts of things to make sure you are, you know, within the bounds of an agreement mm. or compliant with certain rules and regulations. You know, uh, or indeed, if there is a loophole, sometimes the only way to find it is to dive deep into the text. So I would be, I would be wary of relying on these things, but partly mm. because I've been stung by um, uh, dictation software before, where I got things that were very inaccurate um, and typo laden, and I may as well have just done it myself mm. from, from the start. So you know, fool me once and all that kind of thing. Um, however. Uh, you sit in on more meetings than I do. Uh, are you enthused? Uh, I have used it a couple of times. And as you say, it's absolutely terrible with the nuances. And mm. it's putting in things that actually weren't important and it's completely skipping things that were important. Mm. Um, so I think the best way to use an AI like that, if you're using it for a meeting, is to verbally say, that's an action point. We must blah, 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 and do whatever it, it happens to mm. be. Because otherwise it just, uh, it doesn't understand it uh, other, other than that. Do you, anyway. think, do you think this sort of technology will have to change the way we speak in meetings? to make it easier to summarize and generate action items. I think new things will come into the vernacular when we are doing meetings, but I don't think we will necessarily change the way we do meetings. So as I describe, it, it could very well be something as simple as AI, make a note, boom. Yeah. 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 That might find its way into meetings, but meetings will still be, you know, kind of the long, arduous affairs. <laughs> <laughs> that they, they have been for many years. I love that expression. Anything more than 17 minutes is not a meeting. <laughs> However, that's, that's, however. that's a, good, it's a good one. Anyway, we have a ton of stuff to get through this week. So uh, let's fly through it. Uh, Microsoft services under attack this week. What happened? Yeah, uh, a familiar tactic, uh, the distributed denial of service attack. Um, now, traditionally associated with activist groups um, like uh, Anonymous, um, usually there to disrupt or take take down a service for a, a short period of time. Uh, you might remember a couple of years ago we, we had, I don't really, I suppose the second wave of Anonymous, first wave of Anonymous was sort of looking at the Church of Scientology. The second wave kind of looked at um, broader uh, a broader gamut of um of targets mm. um and they used a tool called the low orbit ion cannon you know a, a star wars reference because why not um basically just to knock sites offline um and it looked like uh, another offshoot of anonymous has appeared or had appeared uh in australia they were calling themselves anonymous uh, sudan and what had happened was that during melbourne fashion week there was a model on one of the catwalks who was wearing a, a piece of clothing with a God Walks With Me 
written on it in Arabic, which was taken as sort of a, a red flag to this um, uh, ostensibly Muslim fundamentalist hacker, hacker collective or hacktivist collective who started uh, uh, attacking sort of uh, public sector or started attacking organisations within uh, Australia, including sort of healthcare, aviation, uh, education, all these sort of, you know, tier one services, really. Uh, however, it has since emerged, thanks to research by a cybersecurity firm called CyberCX, that, you know what, Anonymous Sudan, uh, not actually um, Muslim fundamentalists uh, or Islamic fundamentalists. Uh, we are actually looking at a group based in Russia who have adopted the stylings of a hacktivist collective and have adopted sort of the rhetorical stylings of a fundamentalist Islamic terrorism. And have gone, uh, uh, have gone a bit of a tear with it. So the, their point, uh, their sort of modus operandi is, yep, use this sort of familiar um, tactic uh, mm. of sort of the, the the plucky the plucky hacktivists on the ground, and marry it with these sort with a sort of a culture war issue. Um, point being, yeah, Tote's not a state actor, coupled with. Let's sow division as easily as possible within societies. And what's a nice little fault line? Yeah, religious intolerance. Let's let's poke that bear and see what happens. Um, so yeah, uh, apparently it is actually a Russian group affiliated to the Russian uh, hackers Killnet. So uh, the the proverbial cat is out of the bag. So anonymous Sudan, neither anonymous nor from Sudan. And taking on Microsoft is no mean feat and to get somewhere where there is no mean feat either. Like, you know, uh, also speaking of uh, Microsoft news this week and you're a gamer, you'll like it. You, you'll not like this. Um, they are increasing the price of the uh, the Xbox if you want to get there and, and the Xbox, I believe, or the uh, Xbox X or the Xbox Series S, whichever way you want to look at it. However, I think they're both going up around 50 quid if you want to buy the hardware and also the Game Pass, which they do, which is a kind of all right value. I think uh, that's going to go up by about a euro a month as well. Okay, well, Game Pass so, is, is good, in fairness. So that's yeah. it still re- represents decent value for money. There we go. On to other news. Spotify are kind of pulling back from podcasting, as it turns out, uh, a little bit. Uh, they've, they're have they cutting 200 podcasting jobs. I think a lot of that is to do with they just dived into it, not really knowing uh, what they were doing, in that it was just, it was the thing, and podcasting was growing so fast that you just threw a whole load of money and a whole load of people at it. And now the things are settling down and getting a little bit sensible. They kind of go, all right, well, maybe we don't need so many people. Um, yeah, very much news, what happened hmm. with the, um, with Facebook, with all the tech companies, really. They yeah. discovered that yeah. they, they overhired, they overinvested in products. And now that the world has returned to normal, they figured out, actually, maybe not that many people need this product. Exactly. Maybe we don't need exactly. this many people working on it. Um, so that's, you know, lots of big ideas, but uh, the reality just didn't match. Also, uh, they've parted ways with uh, Mag- Meghan Markle and and Harry. And I, I posted about this on um, LinkedIn during the week, and yeah. I got like a huge response. <laughs> <laughs> which okay. I wasn't expecting. Uh, and people on top about, oh, leave Megan alone. She's this, she's that, and she, she's the other and stuff like that. Like, you know, um, but the, the, the point that I was making about it is that, you know, kind of when you have a celebrity on a podcast, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be a great podcast. You know, we have, we have the Tommy Tiernan's and uh, we have Vogue Williams and uh, these, these people kind of at the top of the podcasting tree in Ireland, if you like. Um, but there are plenty of other celebrities and comedians and TV people and radio people and um, whatever who have their own podcasts and they're not doing great. 
Yeah, well, what's interesting about the Sussexes was that they had like a, a not not Joe Rogan numbers. I mean, Joe Rogan mm. has like a hundred million dollar deal or something ridiculous like that, doesn't he? Um, the Sussexes were worth, I think, about twenty million under their deal, wasn't it? Uh, and they produced how many shows? One series, I think. Uh, One series, ten of 12 shows, shows, maybe ten, twelve shows, something like that. Yeah, um, just conversational format. So probably not an awful lot of research. There was a little bit more of it in there, um, but I think that that the problem was that was it was all Megan and Megan's view on mm-hmm. the world, which is fine, right? right? But yeah. if you're not a hugely successful TV actress or you've never married one of the most famous princes in the world, it's going to be very hard to relate to what Megan is talking about. Okay, so you're saying, uh, I mean, uh, an Apple. Jonathan, Jonathan Ives always referred to the housewife in Des Moines. Uh, it's basically, if you can get a housewife in Des Moines to use your product, to understand how it works, yeah. job done. Right. <laughs> they, so They have that in this morning, you know, the whole Philip Schofield thing. Apparently one of the phrases they had, same thing for people getting it, they called them Tower Block Tracys. <laughs> Tower Block Tracys. If Tower Block Tracy can get it, boom, we're in. Right. Anyway, sorry, sorry, go on. So uh, effectively, unless you are of a very, you either know who Meghan Markle is and are interested in her or have exactly the same life, you know, perspective and problems, Mm. Mm. probably not going to like the show. Possibly. Now, listen, uh, I was about to say, I was about to come to Megan's defence and say, ah, now it was very popular and stuff. When it started off, yes, everybody wanted to hear because they wanted to hear what she had to say. Um, Mm. But then it became, I won't say unpopular, but it was finding itself difficult to get into the top 30 podcast chart. And like, if you're taking, you know, kind of a world celebrity like that with the amount of money that went behind it and the full backing of Spotify and you can't even crack the top 30, there just might be something wrong. <laughs> and whenever, yeah. Uh, so they've they, they've uh, parted ways, and I think that this whole thing with because uh, you were mentioning it during the week about expensive celebrity podcasters, I, I think what works with podcasting, and it's it's true of what has always worked with radio, is that if the person who is talking has got the passion and the knowledge for the subject that the listener wants to hear, it'll work. All mm. right. They don't have to be. There's been, we've had loads of people. Do you know what is a truism in radio and television? And I've found this to, to, to be very, very true. People who go from radio into television do very, very well. But people from television who go into radio generally do really badly. Because in television, they're used to having an entire team around them, a producer and a researcher and a runner and a director and a da da and whatever. And then also with television, uh, they plan a lot more. Also with television, they've got the pictures to be able to tell the story and the whole thing. In mm. radio, quite often, it's you and a producer and that's it. And you've got to use your intelligence and your words mm. in order to communicate. And TV people just can't do it. So, you know... Celebrity podcasters, yes, fantastic, but just because you're a celebrity doesn't mean that it's going to work. That was my point. I think, yep, yep, (laughs) words to live by, words to live by. What else have we got going on in the uh, in the world today? Twitter is in trouble in Australia. The uh, Australian authorities are kind of worried about user protection is one thing, uh, and also the spread of online hate. I mean, they really, really have gone um, for Twitter, calling it toxic and and introducing possible 
massive daily fines. How much are they going to fine them if this continues? Yeah, well, thanks to you know effective regulation uh, in Australia, uh, Twitter could be on the line for seven hundred thousand Australian dollars a day over its lack of user protection, content moderation, and general inability to to uh, stop the spread of hate online. To mm. which I say, fantastic, brilliant. Bring these, bring this, uh, bring these guys to heel because Twitter, by design, since Elon Musk has taken over, has been ground into dust. Most of the staff have been let go. There's no media um, uh, interface anymore. It's just whatever Elon Musk says on Twitter. If somebody says something to him, he says seven dollars, so that you'll actually buy his uh, um, his Twitter Blue feature, which will let you post sort of longer tweets and, and insert videos and that kind of thing, uh, which has led to its own huge problems with copyright infringement, because if you can post a video of any length, guess what people are going to post. Um, so yeah, Twitter has 28 days to respond to the complaint from the Australian regulator. Uh, otherwise, it could cost them an awful, awful lot of money. So mm. Twitter so far has cost Elon Musk $44 billion plus, you know, potentially 700 Australian dollars a day, mm. plus back rent of which they owe, I think, nearly 200,000 American dollars. Mm-hmm. Like they, they just sort of up and left some places and, and haven't paid any, haven't paid mm-hmm. for it. Um, yeah, maybe they're looking to save costs by maybe upping the price of Twitter blue. Wouldn't that be hilarious? <laughs> yeah. Or... Uh, Non-paying, bon- uh, not paying uh, staff bonuses, which apparently they have not been doing. Now, speaking of staff bonuses and a, a new brush in Twitter, they've got a new CEO, uh, uh, Linda Yaccarino. You have a new, really interesting question here. Is the new CEO of Twitter a tweeter? She is not. What? Really? She's not a tweeter. The last thing she tweeted was basically, I think it was a, a, a hello letter. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, I'm on Twitter. And that was here's, it, yeah? Here's the plan. Hello, I'm Linda. Here's the plan. Um, right. Yeah, I'm, it, it doesn't really... and it, it speaks to just the degree of firefighting this woman has to do. That, you know, she, she doesn't occupy time in... Actually, in fairness, maybe this is the leader Twitter needs. Someone that has no interest in mm. that sort of cult of personality that Elon Musk revels in. Um, she just has a job to do and just wants to get on and do it. Um, I think that probably is the kind of leadership Twitter needs. Um, yeah. It's it's kind of funny that, you know, she doesn't, uh, uh, she doesn't really seem to engage with or like platform she's in charge of. It is, it is kind of funny, but then again, like, you know, is, is, does the CEO of Philip Morris, is he a smoker? Uh, does, does the CEO of McDonald's go in, going to, you know, have a Big Mac for lunch every day? Probably not, like, you know, so uh, mm-hmm. I, I, and I found that as well in, in my life that uh, with radio and stuff like that, you would think that having the CEO of any uh, radio station being a real radio person could be an advantage. Actually, do you know what? It's not. Uh, somebody who comes in with just a business and runs the business as a CEO is a much better, more effective uh, person running a radio station. Um, but anyway, that's a uh, good look to uh, Linda on that. 
Amazon uh, making headlines as well this week. Um, their safety record in question. What's the story? Yeah, well, Bernie Sanders, uh, a great man for taking on big business uh, in any way, shape or form. Uh, the man is 81. Can you believe that? He's 81 still a serving member of Congress, still passionate about rights for workers mm. and rights for, you know, the, the working class in America. Um, he is taking on uh, Amazon, uh, not, not, you know, self personally, mm. but um, he is, uh, what is he? He sits on the Senate Committee for Health, Education, Labour, Pensions uh, or HELP. And he has basically asked Amazon for the real numbers when it comes to injury rates in their warehouses, because as we know, um, Amazon does not have a very good record on worker uh, safety. Um, Mm. Apparently they pay quite well, but we also know that they do things like regulate bathroom breaks um, and are very, very, uh, how would you say, I say militaristic, but, but they, they know how too heavy like on the efficiency side. Yes, yes, that's that's a very polite way of putting it. So uh, Sanders says that conditions in Amazon's warehouses are uniquely dangerous. So I think that's kind of interesting. So he is looking to bring uh, either Jeff Bezos, unlikely, or Andy Jassy, eh, slightly more likely, um, mm. in front of Congress just to explain themselves what's going on, why are you doing what you're doing. Um, and I, I find Americans are great for this, just bringing people in and asking them to justify what they're doing uh, to little or no action afterwards, really. It's, it just seems to be an awareness yeah. raising operation. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we, we have, um, uh, what is it we have over here? The Public Accounts Committee. And um, it, it just seems to be a, a, a lot of, well, there you go. That's how that works. Unless you take us to court, we're not changing I think you would be surprised, having been involved in that in the Doyle, uh, how that it works, because on the surface of it, it does look like, oh, well, nothing ever happened out of that. But actually, it sets off a bit of a chain reaction because that committee appearance would then lead on to something else, which will then will knock something else on. And then suddenly, well, suddenly, two years down the line, because politics moves slowly, something will actually happen and something will be put into law because of that to make jobs safer for people who are working in Amazon. So who knows? Um, Also with Amazon, the Federal Trade Commission is taking them to court because they're not being very nice to their customers. Never mind their employees. They're not being nice to their customers. Apparently, uh, the word is, is that Amazon are fooling customers into signing up for Prime and then making it hard to cancel. Have you signed up for Prime? I have not signed up for Prime. Uh, I've wanted to. And then mm. common, well, I don't say common sense, but but then like a tiny voice in my head said, do you, do you really want this right now? And I said, no. <laughs> um, however, uh, Amazon have been very good at developing what they call a dark pattern uh, of user experience where people will end up uh, subscribing to Amazon Prime without really meaning to, and then making it very difficult to unsubscribe. Um, it was part of a project called Project Iliad, named mm-hmm. after a very important Greek epic, therefore implying this is a huge project um, uh, with potentially an awful lot of money involved. Um, and that's that's where Amazon are being criticized at the moment. A lot of people saying, I tried to cancel my Prime uh, subscription. It was a nightmare to do it. They intentionally make it a nightmare to do it. So, you know, it's better for your mental health. Just keep the thing on. Um, I do find the whole dark pattern thing um, really interesting. 
because mm. it speaks to the value of user experience and just what can happen if you change the position of a, a button or the position of a tick box or something so small on its own that in collaboration with other elements on a page can lead you to doing something you didn't mm. really want to do. Um, but you think it's not going to make a big difference. Uh, and then maybe it does. It can do. I mean, I have that. I, I distinctly do not like services that you buy online that don't send you a reminder email. And I had one just this week, actually, with uh, with Zoom. And it just came up my credit card. Hey, you've renewed your Zoom subscription, which I mean, that's kind of fine. But I went, it's a little bit more expensive than I was expecting. So I dug into it and they had bolted on a whiteboard, something or the other last year, and it was free. All right. Mm. But because they didn't send a reminder, it was automatically charged this year. Ooh, okay. Which is kind of like, look, it's not big money. Who cares? But I do have a kind of a note for the next 1st of June to say, cancel Zoom. (laughs) (laughs) See how easy it is. (laughs) Well, I'll see how easy it is. Uh, Well, actually, you know, it's really easy. You just uh, change your credit card number to to something else or remove your credit. Actually, maybe it isn't as easy as you uh, (laughs) think. However, um, that's why actually signing up for a load of those things, uh, going through PayPal could be a better way of doing things. Because with PayPal, it's saying, well, this is a subscription. And within PayPal, you can say, no, <laughs> no yeah, more subscription. Just the ones, when, yeah. Yes, when they, when they try to bill that, you can kind of go, no, that's uh, that, that has been refused. Anyway, we shall mm. we shall wait and see. Uh, speaking of Amazon, and this is our final thing today. Uh, if you do, Well, this is going to be of no use to you, Niall, because mm. you're not an Amazon Prime member. But for myself and all the other lucky people in Ireland, uh, Amazon Prime Day is starting on July 11th. It's usually kind of two days where you get amazing deals, uh, particularly on Amazon stuff, you know, kind of like uh, the, uh, the, the readers, um, the Kindle, that's it. The speakers, all, all that kind of stuff. So it's uh, July 11th. So get yourself prepared for that. Right. That is it for the news this week. Niall, as always, thanks for keeping us up to date. This is Tech Radio from techcentral.ie. Get every episode of Tech Radio by clicking follow on your podcast player right now. Every week, it seems like we are talking about new applications for AI, including this week, no exception. But how much do you really know about how AI works and what you can do with it? Mark James is Senior Lecturer in Artificial Intelligence for UCD Professional Academy and leads the Department of Business, Finance and E-Commerce there. He had a chat the other week with Niall Kitson about the concept of AI literacy and how to bridge this new digital divide. One of your areas of interest at the moment is what you've called AI literacy. Uh, Tell us a little bit about the concept. Hi Niall, it's uh, great to be with you. Uh, so AI literacy, the way I would define it is it's understanding, engaging and critically evaluating AI in its applications. So there's a, there's a little bit of technical, um, but there's also societal knowledge of AI systems as part of that as well. Um, the best analogy I would give about it is it's a bit like, do you remember when you first learned to drive? I assume, do you have a car? <laughs> no, but I'm I'm familiar with the process. Excellent. So when you learn to drive, you don't say learn how to be a mechanic, essentially. So you're not learning about the, in, you know, the, the details of every single part that's in the, the engine and how it works. 
But when you are learning, I mean, it certainly helps to be able to understand when I use a clutch, what mechanically is happening, just have a general sense of what's actually happening. Um, also, you know, understanding how to maintain the car, um, how to, you know, if you're, you don't be riding the clutch and all that kind of thing. And also when you do the test, a big part of it is, you know, the theory, the, the regulatory aspects. Are you able to obey the rules of the road? Are you able to, you know, do lots of things to make sure that you don't endanger other people? Um, you know, if there's a you're driving on a slippery surface or bad weather conditions, can you handle that? And that's, it's essentially the same analogy for, for AI. Uh, we're moving to a point now where the technical stuff is not really that important for people, but you do want to have a certain instinct about it, have some sense of how it works so that you know when to use it and where to use it and how to use it in a responsible way to be able to get the, the benefits from it. Uh, but you, you also, um, you need to know the wider picture. And I think that's the big thing. When I would, when I would talk to people about AI literacy, I would say, yes, let's get the technology out of the way quickly. Just get your sense of, just like the car analogy, how the clutch works, how things generally work. But then let's move on because there's a lot of depth here and we, we try to explore it. Yeah, I think that's really important point uh, that there is this paradigm shift there that a couple of years ago, digital skills meant sitting down and getting competent in Word or Excel. Uh, and the discussion was, you know, how do we bridge this gap between everybody having access to these basic applications and being able to use them, where it looks like the discussion is going to be, how do we get people to sort of lose the fear of AI and use it anyway? Yeah, I, I would even go back further. I mean, I, I see a direct trend, uh, a direct line right from the beginning of the computer. So if you think about it, the first computers, if you look at, let's say, Bill Gates, where he talked about how he learned how to use a computer for the first time when he was 15, and it was, it was a school's computer, but he was like one of maybe two people in the whole school who knew how to use it because he had to program it. You couldn't do anything without programming the computer to do something. And so we've moved gradually from that point where you had to initially code in, in binary, assembly language, C, C++, all those kind of languages, all the way up to Python. And so what's happening now is we are at a point where you don't need to be able to code to do things with the computer. So it brings the, the barriers to entry for a lot of functionality with, with computers right down. Um, a lot of the stuff that people are doing right now with, with AI that I'm seeing, like just to give you an example, um, if you're putting together the schedule for a university, uh, you're head of a department or something, and you know that, that can be quite complex, and you probably have to put together a, quite a complex Excel document to be able to do it with lots of formulas. Um, and then if anything changes, you have to re, you know, it's like trying to figure out all the different, you have all these different uh, gears and gizmos within the mechanism, and you have to change it to, to it's, it's a lot of work. There's a lot involved in it. Um, anyone who could code could do that a very long time ago. They would, if there was no application to do what they needed to do, they would simply code for it. What we're saying now is that basically anyone can actually use the functionality that's been in, you know, essentially within a computer for a very, very long time. And because it brings it right down to that point where we're able to interact with it on a natural human level, um, I, I think it's, it's fantastic in terms of democratizing access to these tools. I don't see them as a danger. I see them as everyone now has access to stuff that's been available to only a small segment of the population. 
for most of the time the computers were around. Gradually, more and more people were able to get access to those because of commoditization, because of applications like the office software and so on that made it easier to do things. But it really is now where we're opening it all up, that you can now automate tasks that maybe 15, 20 years ago a coder would have done, just would have created a program and would have automated it, and they would have had an advantage over you. They no longer have that same sense of advantage. Yeah, and I suppose automation sort of being the kind of immediate precursor to to where we are with large language models. Do you think that, you know, we have jumped maybe two or three steps further ahead than perhaps our artificial intelligence journey would have been where we're, we're going from that sort of model of making your job maybe slightly easier to, you know, getting a roadmap for how to do your job from the first place? Oh, absolutely. There's no doubt there's been a huge uh, jump. And it's not just that. I mean, there's a lot of societal stuff as well. And, you know, we, we talked about in the past COVID having jumped forward a lot of other aspects of work that might have taken 20 years, that there was these signs that things were gradually changing. And then everyone took a leap, um, everyone having access to, uh, and, and being quite comfortable as well, but using online platforms for communicating meant that online education is suddenly now mainstream. Uh, that was not the case a few years ago. So it's it's quite interesting kind of how you get these periods within, it's, it's technological disruption, but there's also other elements that kind of play into it. Um, I would say that AI for quite some time has been sneaking into our lives, but it's been under the, the radar a little bit. I and mean, if you think, for example, the amount of AI technology that's in your phone and has been there for a few years, um, photography, all photography with your, with your camera phone, um, has just been extraordinary over the last decade because of AI. And we, we don't think about it, but it's, it's quite complex technology that's built into it. So the fact we're able to get such high quality pictures from a small sensor on a, on a phone is literally the reason, it's, it's because of AI. Yeah, you couldn't do it with the technology. You can't miniaturize the, the physical technology without uh, reducing the quality unless you find some way around it, which is AI improves the, the picture that's, that comes in from the, the sensor. Um, but there's other things as well, like even like stuff that I would have done and maybe like thinking back five years ago and realizing, wow, I can't believe how well this works. I remember one thing um, being uh, when I had to take a panoramic photograph and like simple things like if someone is jumping or anything in the picture, obviously it's taking multiple pictures and stitching it together for you. And I remember doing a panorama manually like 15, 16 years ago and you'd have to stitch together pictures. And if anyone had moved, they're in multiple you know, pictures, so essentially you couldn't do it properly. AI is automatically removing the person's movement to, to make that work. Uh, there's so many different things that we, we just don't think about with AI that's, that's integrated into, li- into our lives, and it's quite complex. But I think what, what's happened with the likes of ChatGPT and BARD and all of those, and the generative image uh, technology as well, um, and the fact that the likes of DALI are, are free and available through Microsoft. A lot of this is now completely open. I mean, that was the big thing with ChatGPT as well, is the fact that it was suddenly available to everyone at the same time, um, or at least the basic service of it. Um, that's, you know, I, th- I think it caught people off guard because this stuff's been coming down the line. I've been watching what GPT was. I've been using the the, the, the beta versions of it since the first generation. Um, so I, I've, I've seen what it could do for, for some time. 
but it's just the fact that they managed to package it up in a, in a way that it looks quite mature as technology. Whereas when I was experimenting with the earlier versions of the model a few years ago, to me, I was trying to conceptualize what exactly will this be when it enters the market? I would have thought it would have been at least a decade away before we actually saw what we're seeing now, which is really exciting because things are moving so fast now. And you can start thinking about, well, wouldn't it be great if we just you know, had this extra feature? We probably have it within a month. I mean, that's, that's the funny thing about it. <laughs> But that speed has also really shown up the limitations of the technology as well, in particular, sort of the language model it's built on and the knowledge base that it's built on as well. Absolutely. And uh, even the fact that we've got this competition now between Bard and ChatGPT and, you know, they've got different capabilities. They're very different uh, on, on back ends. A lot of similarities as well, obviously, but things like um, basically Bard is no good for, for coding. That's now looks like it's going to change because they've just announced US AI, Google, uh, which is going to be basically their, it's like a service connected to their cloud that'll allow you to do coding and a bunch of other tasks. It's basically like an AI assistant. Um, so we're going to see lots of different variations, I think, on the same models from, from, from different companies. Uh, ChatGPT is going to be opening up to, to plugins as well, which will increase its capability because you'll have a specific plugin for a different task. But there's no doubt, I mean, the big challenge in AI all along has been, well, we can create AI systems that can do a specific task unbelievably well, but it's creating something that's able to do or be flexible to, to adapt to whatever a person wants. That was always the difficulty. If you think back to, let's say, um, the early or the chatbots that, that would have like the Alexas and series and things like that. Um, they were kind of impressive, but at the same time, they were very basic. And the reason they were very basic was because they needed to be capable of doing lots of different things. Now, I've seen, I, I was seeing chatbots that were demoed by the likes of Google like seven, eight years ago. If they were built for a specific use case, like taking orders, let's say in a customer service type situation, or you know, ringing to make appointments and you know, that sort of thing. If there was a defined scope for what it was to do, it was brilliant at it because you could anticipate potential issues and you, you were able to you know, box it in that way. Um, what we're seeing with ChatGPT, while there are, you know, if you dig under the surface, you still obviously, as you, as you suggest, there are, of course, weaknesses, but it is still extremely, extremely impressive. A massive jump in technology and the fact it's able to adapt to so much. And there's a lot of things that you would be, I mean, I, I, I haven't explored everything it can do yet, I'm still astonished by things when I when I kind of play around with them. Um, that oh wow, it's able to do this at a point at a, a level of ability that I was really not expecting. I would have thought that it would take longer to kind of mature as it got used to as they get data on how people are using it and they start to refine it more and more. But that process, opening it up to the whole world to use, having billions of users, particularly for ChatGPT, uh, the amount of the quality of data they're getting from the, the use cases that people have. Um, that's a huge enabler in the, the progress of how quickly things are, are moving at, at this uh, at this point. I think one area that is, uh, is sort of emerging and is absolutely fascinating to me is finding ways to get the most out of ChatGPT and effectively spawning uh, a, a little cottage industry of people coming up with prompts to actually get you the information you want, asking effectively asking the right questions. Um, do you see this as being sort of the next generation, I suppose, of UX? For example, where, you know, how do you sit down and get the most out of chat GPT? Well, here's the following prompts to get what you want. Yes, absolutely. And of course, people are sharing the prompts and 
there's a just a thousand books maybe written on it at this stage. I seem to see a new one every day. Um, with with lists of of you know what the best prompt is and so on, but there's a lot of nuance to it. If you if you really understand how the model works, you'll understand that it's not as simple as oh this is the top ten you know prompts for uh, for educators or this is the top ten prompts for accountants or whatever. Um, you have to be you have to have like like the car example I gave earlier. You have to have some sense of what you're doing, what's happening under the bonnet. And it's a case of um, you know trying to figure out what's the best way of, of interacting with it as well. Like for instance, you could ask it to teach you something. You could prompt it uh, with, with specific details. Um, teach me about whatever it happens to be, whatever you're looking to learn. Might be some finance topic, um, but you tell it to take on the persona of a finance professional. Well, then you know is that enough? Do you need to give it a persona of an educator as well? Um, what level of information do you want to be given? Do you want it to teach you as a basic, uh, you know, in a basic level? Do you want it to give examples? Um, do you want it to use specific types of analogies? There's lots of kind of playing around with it, and I like this. This is the the absolute um, miracle of it as well. I think in terms of uh, like one of the big aspects I'm really impressed by is just how adaptable it is to your your needs. So, for instance, I love questions. That's how I learn best. Um, and the, the way I interact with it is I'll ask it, give me 20 questions um, that explore every perspective on this particular topic. And that forces then me to think about that topic and uh, to think critically about it. And that's how I learn. And th- that might be, you know, it could be something to- a totally different approach is uh, suitable to you or to someone else. But you can get that if you know what to ask. And I think probably the best thing I would suggest to people is rather than I mean, you can, you can look at what other people are doing in terms of prompts. You can certainly learn from what they're getting. Um, but if, if you understand the technology, it, there's so much scope for exploration and finding what works for you. Um, does it, you try different things. Try, try to explore different personas. Um, you know, one of the, the things I'm fascinated by, and I speak to AI engineers all the time, and they can't explain to me, like it, it really is, it's amazing how complexity has, has arisen from uh, what is quite a, a simple uh, system in a sense. Um, but the fact is you could ask it to uh, you know, explain something in the style of, you know, let's say you're into Shakespeare or something, and you want the analogy thrown through that, or you want to explain some technical topic, but from the perspective of you know, evolution or whatever it is you happen to be interested in that, that would clarify it for you. Uh, I love the fact you can work within different modes like that. And so that's why I would say to people, try the different things. Just explore and experiment with it. You don't try to copy what other people do because you're unique. You've got your own unique ways of learning, your own unique abilities, your own unique challenges. It really is a case of explore what works for you and that's then your signature with the technology and that gives you your your, your advantage going forward. Your uh, sphere of interest really is business. Uh, we've seen the likes of design thinking find a, a, a home in business. Where does AI literally literacy sit within business and what sort of benefits uh, can you see without maybe becoming too prescriptive? Uh, perhaps people looking for exactly the same advice leading to sort of identical business plans, this sort of thing. How, how can you effectively use it as a differentiator? Absolutely. Yeah, we, I've had this conversation now many times over the last few years. Um, because of the commoditization and the fact that everyone has access to the technology, you certainly can't get your, you, you can't differentiate yourself from your, 
your competitors based on the technology alone. So you're trying to find a way of melding it with the other things that you do really well. And this is this is a people process technology you know challenge. Um, you know, all organizations have really really good things to, you know in terms of their people. Uh, the ways their people work is unique because there's no organization in the world, no matter you know if they've got the same you know, types of, of qualifications or whatever it is, the people are unique. So there's going to be a unique kind of atmosphere and culture. Um, and they have their own processes. And then you're implementing technology within that. And what you have to be really careful of is that you don't damage the good things that your organization does. And so you don't say automate a particular function uh, and say, well, we'll save ourselves money. We'll remove this, this particular part of our business. Because it might be that that was an important connection point and knowledge base and so on for the business. And you've, you've just damaged something that actually was unique and was something that you could build a competitive and probably have a competitive advantage based on, or at least in part. So it's extremely important to have a really nuanced perspective on what exactly is it that we do really well and what, um, you know, what can we, uh, you know, improve, in, how can we use the technology in a way that, that allows us to be able to, to, to offer something special? Um, I think as well, it, it's not just data, uh, or it's not just um, AI literacy, it's also data literacy as well. This is a big challenge, I think, particularly in this part of the world. And um, I, I just having sp- spoken to a lot of people in, in Irish organizations and UK-based organizations, they, they say there's a, there's a big issue with AI projects in terms of we don't really have the architecture and the capabilities, whether it's business capabilities or technical capabilities. And quite often it comes down to data just don't have the, the quality of data. Certain industries in particular are really bad in terms of that. Uh, and also, um, there's also issues in terms of the, the, you know, if you have one particular, like I'll just give you a simple example. Let's say it's a small business and you have a lot of data within an Excel document and, uh, you know, multiple people have access to it and you've got some automation that's based on the data that's been in that document. If someone changes something within that without understanding the big picture of how that document is being used for different functions, they can destroy your whole system. Now, magnify that issue into a large multinational company with people all over the world, all working off data, a data set um, that uh, you know any kind of manipulation or changes of processes or anything within the, the larger business in any point of it could throw the whole thing. So I think it's important for organizations to make sure they train people to understand data, understand AI, understand uh, the, the implications of using the technology. Um, and that's, it really is, it comes down to nuance. Once you have that perspective, just like you know, being an experienced driver, you, know, you can handle a lot of different situations once you've you know, you got that experience and you have that wider knowledge and how everything connects the technology and the regulations and, and uh, you can adapt to situations. And that was Mark James, Senior Lecturer in AI for UCD Professional Academy, chatting with Niall Kitson. This is Tech Radio. That's it for our show this week. Just before we go, we have time for just one more thing. Here's Mr. Jobs. Thank you. As always, we have more stories online we didn't have time for in the Tech Radio podcast, including Apple trying to trademark images of Apple's. Now, that sounds like a good idea to me. Also, Oracle unveils what it calls a sovereign cloud region for customers in the EU, and we look for your listener opinions on AI. You'll find all of that online right now at techcentral.ie. 
Thanks, Steve. We're back again next Friday on RTE Radio 1 Extra. And of course, you can get new episodes automatically by clicking follow on your podcast player right now if you haven't done so already. On to next week, from myself, Dusty, and from Nile Kitson. Thank you so much for listening. Take care. Tech Radio is produced by DustPod.io. From me, Artemis, goodbye. Goodbye.